0: Merry Christmas! As I said, it's a privilege to always gather around the Word of God. And so, as we think about the coming of our Savior, uh, let's turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1, uh, verse 15. The reason why I got this verse is because it tells us very expressly why Christ Jesus came uh, the Christmas time providentially is a time when God has uh, providentially forced the world to think about Christ uh, but Christmas is not very helpful in telling us why Christ came uh, It kind of communicates that Christ came to you know to make us... Uh, happy and, and merry and it's all about gifts and food and stuff like that. But that's a serious misunderstanding of why Christ Jesus came. So Paul then in First 1 Timothy 1:15, 1, says, uh, or rather he's giving his own personal testimony, and this is what he says. The saying is trustworthy and serving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. May we turn to the Lord in prayer and ask for help. Lord, we rejoice that you came into the world. And we rejoice that, Lord, we can uh, think about this not from the abstract imagination of our minds, but from the concrete truth of your authoritative word. Thank you that this is cast on stone. It is both a historical fact that you came, but also an experiential fact that you came and you do continue to show yourself gracious by saving sinners from their sins. So Lord as we open up this verse, give us understanding. May your Spirit help us to come to a good understanding of why the Lord Jesus Christ came into the world. Please take away all these other misunderstandings in the world and use this sermon to help us know for sure why you came. Thank you for those who are here, and thank you for those who will hear this message even later. May we all know the riches of your blessings. In the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So Paul says that the saying is trustworthy. Trustworthy. The saying deserves full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Christians sometimes forget the purpose for which Christ came into the world. And prosperity preachers don't make this easy for anyone because they simply say that Jesus Christ came to make people healthy and wealthy. That's a misunderstanding. And others conduct themselves as if Jesus Christ never came into the world. And all this is very tragic and unacceptable. It is therefore necessary to constantly remind ourselves this important reason for which Jesus Christ came into the world. We don't need to go to the museums to see, you know, dust collected from the sandals of his feet to know why he came. We don't even need to wait for scientific discoveries to know why he came, because the Word of God tells us why he came. I know people may come up with all sorts of reconstructions, but it's easier to simply know from God and His Word why Jesus Christ came. So the saying then is described here as trustworthy, as deserving us of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. That's our Christian message today. Now, let me give you the context in which this saying is written. Paul is giving instructions to the Church of Jesus Christ, and we have what is called the pastoral letters, First and Second Timothy, Titus. These are called pastoral letters. And if you look at the, uh, these pastoral letters, you would see that there is a backbone to them and it is these five trustworthy sayings this is the first one so this is the very foundation upon which this backbone of the church and instructions to the church of jesus christ this is where it begins that the saying is trustworthy and it's deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. The second one is in First Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone desires or aspires to the office of an overseer, he desires a noble task. The third trustworthy saying is found in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 9 to 10. The saying is trustworthy and is serving of full acceptance. For to this end, we toil and strive because we have a hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. And then the fourth is 2 Timothy 2.11 and 13. The saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with Him, we will also live with Him. If we endure, we will also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He also will deny us. If we are faithless, He remains faithful because He cannot deny Himself. And the last trustworthy saying is found in Titus 3.8. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Therefore, these things are excellent and profitable for people. So it begins with salvation, and it concludes with good works. These five trustworthy sayings. That word translated trustworthy can also be uh, translated faithful. This is a faithful saying. And that's why, that's how it's translated in the authorized version. And that's what we're seeing, Um, you know, making each faithful saying mine. It's also, it can also be translated reliable or dependable. That which is trustworthy is faithful, it is truthful, it's reliable, it is dependable. And this word shows that the proposition which it introduces has sustained the crucial fiery test of experience. It's not a mere guess, it's not a conjecture, it's not a theory, it's not a possibility, it is a well-conceded determination and judgment of the Holy Spirit that this is a trustworthy saying. So this is a very important statement. It should be known by learning it, by memorizing it, by meditating on it. By applying it as I hope to do here today, the saying is not only trustworthy, but it's also worthy of all acceptance. That is, it should be received and accepted as true, it should be celebrated. And loved as the epitome of our salvation. It should be believed and lived. We should love it and live it. We should make each faithful saying ours. Beginning with this one. And so in the gospel of Luke chapter 19 verse 10. We learn that Christ came to seek. And to save the lost. And Paul tells us here that Christ came into the world to save sinners. Even the very worst. Even the chief of sinners. Even the king of sinners. And in case you think that Paul is mistaken, the angels, while announcing the birth of Jesus, what did they tell Mary, you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. So then, in the first place, then notice that Christ came into the world. That's a no-mean statement. Christ came into the world. Christ came into the world of sinners. When he was born of Mary, he was born under the law to redeem those under the law. Galatians 4.4 tells us. Christ came to this sinful laden world. He came to sin infested world. He came to This sin-affected, sin-saturated world. It was not simply a change of location from heaven to world. When that word world is used, it shows the the corrupt state into this location where we are told he came. It was not just a change of state from that of glory to that of humility. It was a change of moral and spiritual environment. This coming into the world includes incarnation, suffering, death, burial, even resurrection. And it is what is called a state of humiliation of Christ, except for the resurrection, which is the first place of his exaltation. So this coming into the world was the highest form of sacrifice and the climax of God's grace in the salvation of sinners. The sovereign creator, he condescended to come to his creation, not just to live amongst his creation, for that is not a big deal. He came into the world of creation to become as his own creation, In a body of flesh and blood, he was limited by time and space, even limited to fit into the womb of a virgin. The all-seeing God had two eyes. Think about that. The omnipotent God took two homes. The glorious king was born under the rule of Caesar Augustus. That doesn't make sense. The infinitely holy God condescended to come to a world of sin, to a body acceptable to sin, yet sinless. The transcendent God of glory came to a sinful world of men. What I'm saying is, this is God in love, humbled, humbling himself voluntarily into the sphere of which he does not belong. He came into the world. The ethical sense of the word world is intended in that statement. This is the world where curse and its effects of thorns and visus infest. His coming was felt though, as far as the curse is felt. He was into the world. He said again and again that he was enforced into the world. He laid down his life for his sheep out of his love. As he says in John 10 verse 18, where he says, no one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This church I've received from my father, he said. So the Lord humbled himself to the form of a servant, and even less than a servant, for though he was in the form of God, the Bible says he did not count equality with God as something to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. All being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Such was the humility that has brought us salvation. Such was his humility It is out of this humility that we were saved from our state of sin. Christ came into the world. Think about that again. He didn't come into the world by proxy. He didn't say, Angel Gabriel, there is some assignment for you down there in the world. Go and execute it. He didn't say, Angel Gabriel. Michael, or any of the the seraphs, or the cherubim. He He didn't send them. He came personally. He emptied himself of all but love, as Charles Wesley writes. And then he bled for Adam's helpless race. It is mercy all. And all we can say, let all earth adore. It was Love divine, all love's exhaling, joy of heaven to earth come down. This was all of divine gracious mercy. Oh my God, we say it found it it found me, and yes, it found me and could find you also if you're not saved. But Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. But The question is, why are you not saved? Is it because there is no Savior of sinners? Is it because Jesus Christ did not come into the world? Why are you not saved? Is it not because you would not come to Him who came to you? Christ came so that you may come to him. Christ came that you may be saved. But we read that he came to save sinners. In this world. Not in the world of angels. Or any other world for that matter. He came into our world. Into the world of sinners. To save sinners. Secondly. So we've seen in the first place that he came into the world and secondly that he came into the world for a purpose to save sinners. His coming into the world was not purposeless. What made the son of righteousness come into the world of sin? What was the purpose of his coming? Why did Christ come here? The Bible says here that Christ came to sin us. He came to the world of sinners, and the sole business of his coming can be summarized by those words to save sinners. To save sinners. For sinners he came. Jesus sinners will receive sound this word of grace to all come and he will give you rest he will take the very worst christ receiveth sinful man but notice what that statement does not say when it says that he came to save sinners there are things that he doesn't say it does not say that christ came into the world to make the poor to be rich it does not say that Christ came to make you happy or comfortable. The trust the word does neither promise riches nor honor. It does neither promise earthly happiness nor comfort. It promises neither wealth nor health. But it has a promise, a wonderful promise to see us. Because it says, sinners. us. Salvation they will have. Sinners will be saved. Sinners, Jesus came to save. It promises sinners salvation for their souls from sins. It promises life and life abundantly. It promises eternal life. Life which has no end, without fear of death, nor fear of hell. Therefore, No scheme of Satan or man can pluck you from eternal life given by Christ to whom he saves. So Christ came into the world not to condemn the world, although the world deserved condemnation, but so that through him sinners may be saved. For we read in John chapter 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son to the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. He came to save sinners. He did not come to make their salvation possible. Did you hear that? Christ did not come to make salvation possible or available. He came to save. That's what the statement says. He did not come to help us be able to be saved. He came to save us. He came to save us. He did not come to enable us to come to Him. He came to save us. He did not come to induce us to save ourselves. He came to save sinners from their sins. And this is what that means. Negatively, it means that He came to rescue sinners from the guilt of sin. As Paul writes to the Ephesians, verse 1 and, uh, chapter 1, verse 7, and to Colossians, chapter 1, verse 14. He came to rescue sinners from the guilt of sin. And then secondly, He came to rescue sinners from the slavery of sin. Romans 7.24 and 25 in Galatians chapter 5 verse 1. Came to save us from the slavery of sin. From the guilt of sin, from the slavery of sin, and from the punishment of sin. In his salvation, he rescues sinners from what they deserve. The punishment. And you know, this punishment includes three things it's the alienation from God, it's the wrath of God, and it's everlasting death. That's what he came to save us from. So when you hear, when you hear that there is punishment for sin, we are talking of those three things. We are talking of that awful alienation, separation from God because of your sins. We are talking about the wrath of God which is poured out among to, to sinners. And then we are talking about everlasting death. He came to rescue us from all those things. And then positively it means Christ came to bring men into the state of righteousness. He was born under the law and he obeyed the law of God perfectly and pleased God perfectly. And when we say that he came to bring us into the state of righteousness, this is what I mean. He came and by his death we are declared righteous. We are justified. And then secondly, Christ came into the world to bring men into the state of freedom. Freedom from the slavery of sin. Freedom from the influence of the evil one. Freedom from all those things. And then thirdly, Christ came to bring men into the state of blessedness. What is this blessedness? It's fellowship with God. That wonderful communion with God. Ephesians 13. We have now been brought near. And he came to bring us into the blessedness of the love of God. The love of God is shed abroad into our hearts. Romans 5.5. And he came to bring us to the everlasting life. Where he delivered us from everlasting death, he now conveys us into everlasting life. That's salvation. Ephesians 2.1. And you were dead in your trespasses. You were. You were Ephesians. That's what you were. But now you've been raised up and you've been seated up with Jesus Christ in the heavenly realm. Colossians 3.1-4. You, you are to... Think about those things that are above where you belong. So what does it mean to be saved? And so many times I go out in evangelism, I ask people who tell me that they are saved, what do you mean you're saved? Rarely do I get a correct answer. So what does it mean that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners? What is to be saved? To be saved means to be freed from the from the worst plague of your heart and the greatest, greatest evil of your soul. To be saved is to be placed in a place of greatest blessing and safety. The state of salvation is the antithesis of the state of perishing, of being condemned, of being lost. Sinners are conveyed from the domain of darkness and into the motherless light of his kingdom. Dead sinners are made alive in Christ. Children of wrath are turned into children of God. Those who are perishing are made to be those who are being saved. Sinners are received into the bosom of the Son. when we hear that, we repeat Come, ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded by the fall. Jesus, ready, starts to save you, full of pity, love, and power. Come, ye weary and heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you wait until you're better, you're not likely to come. Because not the righteous, not the righteous. Sinners is the ones that Jesus came to call. So we have seen that, first of all, that Christ came into the world and we've seen the purpose for which he came. He came to save sinners. And thirdly, Christ came into the world to save the worst of sinners, even the foremost. Of sinners. The saying is trustworthy and is serving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world and he came to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. The translation should be Of whom the foremost am I? also be, foremost of whom am I? He secured, Paul here secured the attention upon himself as a clear illustration of the depth of human sin and depravity in order that verse 16 may return to that wonderful theme of the exhortation of the power of divine grace and mercy and patience in the lives of sinners. But right now, he says that Jesus Christ is able to save the very king of sinners. So here is someone thinking, and I have been in a context where a man in Randili who is tipped in his idolatry, in moon worship, in all forms of rejecting God, he asked us this last time, you're saying that this God can save a sinner like me? You don't know me. I have been into sin all my life. I'm an old man. I've sinned over and over again. Would he want to save such a man? What do you think is the answer? Of whom I, Paul, I am the foremost. Who is the foremost of sinners? Who is the foremost of sinners? How easy it is to say Paul, isn't it? I mean, that's what he's written, isn't it? And if you did that, you would be like the Pharisee saying to God, I thank you, God, I am not like that man over there, a See, sinner. You know sees in that state will not be saved. They, he went home condemned. He was not justified. Because instead of seeing the horribleness and the, the awfulness and the weight, the overwhelming weight of his sins, he was seeing the sin of others. So next time I say of whom I I don't need to qualify it and say, Paul, I need to say, of whom I, I am the sinner. But thankfully, Paul says, I received mercy for this reason, that in me as a foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. That's what he says in verse 16. Is Paul saying here that he, Paul, as at the time when he was writing, was continuing in sin than any other person? Is that what Paul is telling us there? Yes? Is that what Paul is saying? Absolutely not. He told the Corinthians and the Ephesians, That he lived in a good conscience before God and before man. He asked people to follow his example. What he meant is that before his conversion, he persecuted the church of Christ than anyone else. And for this, he should be regarded as the king of sinners. This should be seen as one of the important evidences of a person who is close to God. Who has truly been transformed by by the power of the gospel. They constantly see how sinful they are in light of the glory of God. And they take responsibility for their sins and condemn themselves before the eyes of God. They wait on God to show for this mercy in their lives. And so, when, when Isaiah stands before God, in Isaiah 6, in that year that King Uzziah died, He saw the Lord exalted high above the throne. And the train of his temple was filling up the temple. And he had the worship of the heavenly host. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole world is full of his glory. And Isaiah was like, woe unto me, for my eyes have seen the Lord. And I am a sinner, and I dwell amongst the sinners. So Paul makes a comparison between himself and every other sinner saved by Christ, and he concludes that there cannot be anyone else worse than him when he remembered the gruesome deeds of his depravity in the past, how he ravaged the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women, committing them to prison, as Luke writes in in Acts chapter 8, verse 3. He knows there can't be a sinner worse than me. And so the Lord had accused him not simply of persecuting the church, but of, of persecuting Christ himself. Chapter 9, verse 5 here is his conviction of guilt for persecuting the church of Christ and therefore persecuting Christ. And the conviction overwhelms his soul so that he says, of all the sinners whom Christ Jesus came into the world to save, I am the greatest. I am the worst. In fact, I am the chief. No, I am the king of sinners the apostle, who so well knew his past, was able to, in all sincerity, describe himself as being the king of sinners. And my friends, don't see your sins as any better than Paul's. Because your sin is sinful enough to cause God's wrath to be poured upon your soul for all eternity. And like Paul, you need to see your sins from what they are. You must see that these are sins that warrant you hell. So please, and and we are very good at this. We are very good at reducing our sins. Yeah, I'm not that bad. I'm not that badly off. You know, I, 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 was, I was not so bad. I was a good girl. I was a good boy. And you reduce your sins. You excuse your sins. You justify your sins in reducing. Your lies and your lusts, your covetousness, your pride, your money-loving, materialistic lifestyle, the perennial unfaithfulness to God, your inconsistencies in your life, the hypocrisy and the corruption, any sexual immorality and perversion, the constant hate, malice, and anger, and all the evils lodged in your soul in your heart need to be brought before the scrutiny of the glory of God and let the ray of His holiness expose every evil thought, word and deed. Let the Lord help you to see your failure to love Him for who He is and see that as idolatry. You must hate your sin enough to expose it to God. Let the Holy Spirit convict you of your continued failure in harnessing the means of grace that He has given for the edification of your soul. May the Lord convince you of the preciousness of Christ and see that you are indeed more than an average sinner. Now let me tell you, average sinners will not go to heaven They will go to hell. Because we all want to see ourselves. I am an average Christian. I'm an average sinner, is what really you're saying. I pray that the Holy Spirit may convince you of how sinful you are and how sinful you have been And also convince you of the preciousness of Jesus Christ who is freely offered in the gospel. That you may see him as the Savior of sinners. And go to him. And go to the cross of Christ. And don't go there as an average sinner. Go there as the chief of sinners. You're no better better sinner. There are no better sinners. Sinners are sinners. All sinners are hell bound. And so, a chicken thief is not better off than a bank robber. A single lie, a single lie will send a world's soul As much as a single hole can sink the world titanic ship, one unrepented lie is a sin enough and bad enough as a whole bunch of them and the wages of sin, any sin is death. You accept that you are indeed a sinner? Now we sing, ye need God's free bounty glorify True belief and true repentance every grace that brings you nigh. Without many, without many, come to Christ Jesus and buy. Let not conscience make you linger, nor a fitness fondly dream. All the fitness it requires is to feel your need of Him. This He gives you. It is the Spirit's rising beam. Come, and He will give you rest. Trust Him, for His word is plain. He will take the very worst. Christ receives a sinful man. This is a trustworthy saying. It is worthy. Of full acceptance. And so we believers who are here. Know the value of this. We see the sweetness. Of the gospel. We see the value. Of the gospel. The good news about Jesus Christ. As the savior of sinners. And I want to tell you. You cannot fight. Any better news than the good news of Jesus Christ? You must not delay or postpone your salvation. You must flee to Christ and fall at His feet and plead for His mercy. That's what you need to do, my dear friend. Don't worry that you've lived in sin for so long. Believe in Christ. This is the only hope for your soul. Tell the Lord of your moral lapses today. Tell him of your continued unbelief and doubts. Tell him that you need to be saved today and now. Do not leave it for tomorrow. I know how the devil whispers in your ear. He tells you, why do it now when you can do it tomorrow? After all, you have all the lifetime ahead of you. You can you can get saved when you want. Delay, delay it for another day. Don't repent today. Sure. Such are the devil's lies. Such are the lies of the evil one, and you need to reject them and flee to Christ and tell. Tell him, oh, evil one, I've never known you to speak truth. You're ever lying. Go to Christ and tell him to have mercy upon you, a sinner. As for believers, remember, remember what you were. Remember what you were. You were a slave to sin you are dead in sin you lived in sin and loved sin how can you now go back there how how can you go back there I plead with you to see that you've been rescued from your sins, you've been saved from your sins, you've been delivered from your sins, flee from them you can't love them again you are now in love with Christ You are now in love with the Savior of your soul, not with sin. The Lord has saved you. And he has come and he has brought to you the most blessed, the most secure place. And you know, such trustworthy saying will not have been appreciated if it does not lead us believers to doxology. To praise, it must lead us to worship God. I mean, even for even for Paul here. He says, "The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance." And then see how he ends it in verse seventeen. And this is the right, this is the right way of doing things. It must lead us to worship God, to praise Him for such a great salvation. You know, after the children of Israel were delivered from the bondage of Egypt, and they were, they were helped by the righteous, omnipotent, uh, omnipotent heart of God to cross the Red Sea, they burst, not into laughter, but into singing, into praise. When they saw that they had been delivered from the slavery of Egypt, the peril of the Egyptian army, and the danger of the Red Sea, they burst into praise. But then now, how much more we who have been delivered from the peril of eternal death and the slavery of sin and Satan, how much more should we burst into praise? So then Paul concludes with, to the king of angels, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Lord, we thank you that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, even the foremost. And yes, Today, Lord, we, we're seeing what gift of grace is Jesus, our Redeemer. And as it were, it's true that there is now no more for heaven to give. Because you gave your only Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be the Propitiation for our sins. And not for our sins only. But for the whole world. For he came into the world. To save sinners. Even the foremost of sinners. Can be saved by him. So those. Of the foremost who hear this Lord. Call them to yourself. And save them to the uttermost. For you are able to save to the uttermost. All those who draw near to God through you by faith. Bless us, Lord, as we think about the incarnation of Christ, his first coming, and motivate our hearts to think about his second coming, when he will appear, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Receive all thanks and praises. Be magnified in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you very much. God bless you and have a Merry Christmas and a prosperous 2022.